Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Everybody, it's Rebecca Milzoff, your host of the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I am a senior editor at Billboard. For those of you who haven't listened before, I am a huge musical theater fan. And every week on the podcast, we talk about all the exciting musical theater that's going on right now and the ways in which it crosses over with pop music. So I'm a big Hamilton fan. I'm a human being with a beating heart. So yay, Hamilton. Uh, but when Hamilton first opened, there was all this, oh my God, there's never been anything this original in musical theater before talk. And I found myself always wanting to say, um, there was this other show that was pretty freaking original that we should not be forgetting about that I saw pretty recently. And it was called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I had seen it back in 2013, and it was a musical, but just calling it a musical felt kind of too reductive. It was like this huge, immersive experience that, when I saw it, took place in a giant like circus tent near the West Side Highway in New York. Uh, if you were in the audience, you were served vodka and pierogies. Um, it was like this cool, like old-school Russian supper club transported to the future somehow. Um, and the music in the show was almost impossible to categorize. It, uh, there was definitely a traditional Russian sound. Um, there was sort of an operatic feel to it. But just as much, there were rock and pop and even EDM kind of sounds involved. Really, it was an adaptation of a very small chunk of Tolstoy's War and Peace, but again, introducing it that way almost felt like a misnomer. When you tell people, I saw a musical about War and Peace, they're going to be like, what? Why do I want to see that? Uh, in fact, it touched on these like huge existential themes um, through these really human characters portrayed by actors who had really singular, memorable, not traditional for Broadway voices, voices maybe a little bit more like what we'd hear in the pop world. Um, and one of those belonged to Dave Malloy, who played Pierre and also happened to have written the music, lyrics, book, and orchestrations. Dave has this really cool voice that reminds me like a little bit of Elvis Costello. Um, and another was Philippa Sue, this really magnetic young soprano who played Natasha. And plenty of people noticed how amazing she was. And yes, she played Eliza in Hamilton soon enough. Uh, the Comet, as it's now often abbreviatingly called, 
uh, has gone through many creative iterations since then. In fact, I what I was seeing at the tent was really its second version. It had been in a smaller theater first. Um, and now it's finally reached Broadway, which feels really appropriate, although it's not really in traditional Broadway show form. The creative team has totally almost redone the Imperial Theater where it happens. So the cast is performing throughout the house, and it really feels very similar to the sort of Russian supper club atmosphere that I experienced at Casino, which was the name of the uh, tent I was talking about. Uh, Josh Groban is now playing Pierre. Though starting in July, more Hamilton takeover happening. Uh, Oak Onaudawan, who you may know as Hercules Mulligan and James Madison and Hamilton, is going to be taking over as Pierre when Josh leaves. Uh, but really one of the greatest things about the Comet is that it's an un- ensemble show. Even though it may seem like there's one star, really everyone gets a star moment at some point. And that is in large part thanks to how great Dave Malloy's writing is. He really writes for specific voices. Um, so I was happy to chat with him and two members of the cast, Britton Ashford and Lucas Steele recently, about what makes this show and its sound so unique. There's a ringing in my head There's a sickness in the world And everyone knows But pretends that they don't see Oh, I'll sort it out later But later never comes And how many men before Good Russian men Believing in goodness and truth Entered that door Hey, I'm Lucas Steele And I play a cad named Anatole Karagin. I'm Britton Ashford, and I play Sonia, who is the the, the good character in the show. <laughs> uh, and I'm Dave Malloy, and I'm the composer and lyricist, and I, on occasion, play Pierre. <laughs> on special occasions. Yes. When the moon is in the right place in the sky. That's right. <laughs> so I am someone who has seen the show twice at this point, once in the prior incarnation intent mm-hmm. and once on Broadway. Awesome. Um, well done. Yes. <laughs> Good job. Uh, I didn't see the original original, but suffice to say this show has had a very long and winding road to Broadway. Unusual. Uh, I know it would probably take the whole podcast to tell the entire story, but can you take us through a little bit of what it took to get from the original Comet incarnation to where we are now? Sure, I can start off. So we started at a small theater uh, called Ars Nova, which I believe was about 87 seats when we were in there. Uh, and that was back in 2012, 13, 13. 13, 2013. 13. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting, like kind of from there, every time we've moved, we've kind of doubled in size. So the the next thing we transferred off Broadway to yeah, a tent that we built in the meatpacking district uh, called Casino, and there were 199 seats. And then the following year, we moved to ART in Boston, and that was 512 seats. And now we are at the Imperial Theater on Broadway, which is about 1,200 seats. So every time we've kind of doubled the size of the space and then the ensemble. When we started off, we didn't have an ensemble. It was just the 10 principals, and we actually didn't have a few musicians. We didn't have a drummer, so the <laughs> actors were just playing, yeah, training off on drums. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so every time we've moved, we've kind of gotten... Uh, more, more opulent and more actually the thing, more the thing of Tolstoy, more the kind of uh, huge sweeping thing that Tolstoy is writing about. Yes, which brings up 
my second question, which is whenever anyone asks me to describe the show, I really find myself at a loss because there there's so much and only so many words, but I usually say it's based on a small section of War and Peace and it's really cool. And that's about <laughs> all I can say. So How do you all describe it to your friends when they say, what is this show you're in? Um, it's That's a hard one, but I also am like, well, you know, it's based on War and Peace, uh, but it's so much more than that. I think people hear War and Peace and they become afraid, uh, but you know, as you mentioned, the the genres seem to cover a lot of different bases. Uh, there's a little. I always say there, there's a little something for everyone. But mm. it, you laugh, you'll cry. It's you know, it's a love story about. You'll have a snack. Yeah, you'll have a snack, a shaker, <laughs> maybe a drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My my preferred genre description for the show is an electro pop opera because I feel like that kind of contains in the broadest sense like all the kind of elements of the show. Um, so there is mm-hmm. electro, there is kind of some EDM music and some kind of more contemporary sounds. Um, then pop, there are just some kind of legitimate pop songs, you know, spanning everything from like what a golden era Broadway pop song would be to like what a contemporary like R&B or hip hop pop song would be. And then opera, there is like this kind of strain of like Russian classical music and it is sung through. So there's also this kind of, um, you know, almost like Les Mis sort of rock opera world going on as well. But also to speak to Dave's brilliance, there is still this, there is a folk feel that is going on, especially with the Russian music. So it really, it's amazing the way this piece travels through so many different styles, but still feels cohesive. Yeah, It's really like nothing I've ever heard any composer that's writing for the musical theater sort of accomplish. And the fact that I mean, I'm going to brag about him, that he wrote the music <laughs> and the lyrics, and he wrote the orchestrations. This is one man who wrote all of this. This is one man sitting before us. Yeah. yeah. I, don't know, I don't know anyone else <laughs> Only slightly who's crazy. done that. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. He walks Remarkable. among us. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I, I think that's a huge accomplishment, too, the fact that you jump between genres so quickly between songs, but it all feels of a piece. How did you keep that coherence going as a writer and not have it come out as this schizophrenic work? Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, like it's it it comes a lot from just the way that I grew up on music and the way that I experience music. So my my iPod kind of exists permanently on shuffle, um, and I just mm-hmm. love so many genres of music. And so I was kind of raised on '60s and '70s rock and roll, and then I went through it jazz snob phase and then a classical snob phase and then I like discovered electronic music and you know found out about like Indonesian music and Indian music and and reggae like all along the way Um, and so I just love hearing all those kinds of music and hearing the similarities between them so I think there and some of it is kind of more intuitive than anything but you know harmonically a lot of the songs whether we're in an electronic world or in a folk world the harmonies are the same so like one of my favorite examples of that is there is a song uh, called The Duel, which takes place like in a Russian techno club, and it's like driving, driving, four on the floor, house music, but there is a melody that's sung over that, and then that same melody comes back in act two as a Russian folk melody. And so the melody and chords are exactly the same, it's just that you know what's going on in the background transforms it from a, you know, a 21st century electronic piece to a 19th century folk piece. Yeah, it's really the way that he's chosen to set all of the music because I think you could take this show and you could certainly write all of it in a certain style and it would still sound completely great and consistent mm-hmm. but the the choices of the way they sort of frame each moment style wise and how that informs the piece again this is all very smart composition going on mm-hmm. there is a 
there's a feeling of delightful chaos to the whole thing, but I feel like anything that looks like chaos in such an enjoyable way is actually probably very, very organized and planned behind the scenes. And that that is, you know, mostly our amazing director, Rachel Chavkin, who, yeah, who thrives on her organized, controlled chaos, I believe is her preferred (laughs) term. Um, And she's also, like, one of the things that's amazing about Rachel is she really works with the actors and collaborates with the actors, and so the actors are creating their own things as well. So there are things that happen in the show that like Rachel and I have probably never seen because there are like secret <laughs> things you know happening uh, and the actors are really encouraged to do that and of course Rachel is kind of lording over all of that I'm watching go okay you can you know rein that in a little bit we need more of that and she's kind of looking at the the broad picture mm-hmm. it's that thing of I think there are none of us I don't think there's anyone involved in the show that knows every moment that is going on <laughs> because there can be moments happening in a dark corner up in the mezzanine or in the balcony that only those actors that are involved in that moment and those specific audience members actually know about. And I think that is what keeps the piece so incredibly alive at all times, Mm -hmm. is that it's not, we're all really just living in the space. Living. Uh, (laughs) You are very much living. Uh, That brings up the excellent point that for those uh, listening who haven't seen the show on Broadway, it completely kind of reconfigures a Broadway theater. So the actors are coming out into the audience and there are actors in the mezzanine and on staircases and on platforms and there really isn't a bad seat. But I wonder for the actors how insane it is <laughs> to have to run around and know your place. It seems like it would be like air traffic control to know <laughs> where to be at any one moment. I mean, the tracks are so, like, that is the one thing. It's like they are very... As you mentioned, it looks like chaos, but they are very well accounted for. So we know, like, if somebody's off by, like, half a second, yes, you very well might run into someone (laughs) else. Um, But, yeah, it's very, the movement is very controlled. Yeah, it has to be. And the the pit, so to speak, is not really the pit. It's a band smack in the middle of the action. And I have to give a shout-out to them because I think that or you're... Uh, music music director? Music yes, supervisor? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. He's like my hero. He's a beast. I'm just going to give him a so shout good. out because yeah. I have a little crush on him. Um, I think he's amazing. And he, <laughs> he, he he's almost like a ringleader of the circus that's yeah. happening. It's true. Yeah. And he, and then like he, we should say like he is in the center of the space with the piano and the bass and uh, guitar, but mm-hmm. the rest of the instruments are actually scattered all about the theater as well. So oh, clarinet so I is, didn't see that from yeah, where I Yeah, yeah. So the clarinet, the woodwinds, the clarinet and oboe are like on the far upstage corners uh-huh. and the drums are in one of the boxes and keyboards in another box and the strings are kind of dead center. Um, yeah. And then so, all the actors playing the musicians yeah. <laughs> are spread around as yeah. well. There are additionally like 10 actors who are playing, you know, violin, viola, accordions, clarinets. Lucas Steele himself plays a little violin at one place. A little surprise. But even just to like give Orr even more props, the amount of multitasking that he does, being in the center of the space, and he knows the show so well now that we can, if something is going wrong, like say a liquid gets spilled on stage from one of our props or you know a sound a microphone goes out or something he is there you can go to him water stage right he can like grab a towel wipe it up while conducting there there was a really <laughs> amazing moment when one of our actors mics went out and i didn't i didn't even know i was on stage in the action when this was happening and i didn't even see him he ran up to the actor with a handheld mic and i only saw him running back down and i was like where did he even come from yeah. like how did yeah. this happen it was just like like he saw the need and he filled it immediately yeah. and his yeah. attention to detail is 
just phenomenal. <laughs> Rockstar. He's like the magical elf of the comet. Mm-hmm. You never know where he comes from, and yet he's there. <laughs> well, Lucas and Britton, you both have such completely distinctive voices, which I think is really indicative of what the whole cast is like. These are This is really an ensemble show. I think even though there are two ostensible leaders of the cast in Josh Groban and Danae Benton, I think that this is a show that's really about the group and everyone has a little solo moment at some point, but you come away, I think, remembering the cast more than any one person. Uh, And I think that's a credit to Dave and the way I think you really compose for unique voices. So first, I want to hear from the two of you, you know, where did you come to this show from? Did you envision a Broadway career for yourselves Mm -hmm. or someone who would write for your voice in this way? I started out playing the piano very, very young at about three and a half. My parents learned I could play by ear. So I started, I wrote my first sort of sonatas when I was five. Um, Okay. And because I had a good ear, I started uh, mimicking singers that I heard and I kind of grew up singing in church. Mm -hmm. And I caught PBS, ran uh, the American Playhouse series production of Into the Woods. Mm. And that was a moment when I thought, oh, what is this thing that I'm watching right now? This is really fascinating. So that kind of gave me a bit of the theater bug. And then I went to school for theater. And through that study, you know, had some teachers sort of say, well, just so you know, if you ever want to do film TV or work in plays without music, you do have that skill set. So don't sell yourself short coming there. So coming to New York, it was, you know, whenever you're moving to a new city and you don't know anyone at a young age, it is very overwhelming and the time that it sort of takes to get implanted in the business. And thank God that I had writing to give me a foundation of creativity because no one really needs to give you permission to write the way you need permission to get into a room to audition for something. Mm -hmm. So my kind of desires artistically shifted and shaped over the years and led me into more writing and singing in many bands at all of these places downtown from, um, you know, Sine to pianos to CBGBs. I mean, I was kind of doing that thing. Mm-hmm. And thank God I did because I evolved in a way that made me ready for this experience to come into something like this, which is, as Dave was saying, so... Um, mixed in the styles of things and Mm -hmm. there is so much understanding of where different kinds of music come from it's It's funny that you mentioned into the woods because when i think of anatole's style Mm -hmm. i think of him as being like a combination of one of the like agony princes Mm -hmm. and like freddie mercury yeah (laughs) Yeah. sure take it yeah david Bowie was definitely on our minds when we were kind of yes that too yeah but freddie mercury as well sure and what about you written um I approached it from like a fairly different place. I mean, not too dissimilar, but uh, when I was in high school, I really loved musical theater, but I didn't exactly fit the mold of what my school was doing. It was a a known school for theater, and you know, we were doing Oklahoma and Anything Goes and that sort of stuff. And I never really excelled at, at that moment. And even though I really loved it, I thought, you know, a life pursuing theater and particularly musical theater seems really hard for my type. So, you know, maybe I'll just focus on singing and music. I'd already started writing music and teaching myself guitar and 
you know, I ended up going to college for English and history, and I continued to play music and play in bands in Seattle, and then I uh, moved to New York and just kept playing music, and like Lucas was playing a lot of like less savory downtown venues, you know, like the basement, <laughs> basement of a cake shop or, or little nicer places like the living room or, yeah, you know, candy store. Pete's candy yeah. store. Oh, I love Pete's candy store still. Uh, playing pianos and what we used to call the cat box, which was like upstairs, but it was this weird like carpeted, yeah. you know, yeah. type, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so just playing lots and lots of shows. And that's actually how I met Dave randomly at a party. And he was like, oh, you play music? You play auto harp? Interesting. Okay. And he came to one of my shows and just really, I don't know, he must have. Must I liked have, it. Dave <laughs> liked it. And yeah. so when he approached he approached me to do the show, and I I was a little apprehensive at first just because it's not, it is not my background. Um, but he sort of twisted my arm, yes. and I'm really glad that he did. Uh, so yeah. are we. Yeah, <laughs> and you have—I mean—you have a wonderful song in the show, Sonia Alone, that I think almost sounds like a single for kind of like a folk singer in some way. I mean, it could completely stand on its own outside the context. I mean, that song was completely yeah. written specifically for Britain and for her voice, mm-hmm. and very much with that in mind. That yeah, they wanted to feel like a kind of self-contained moment in the show. Is yeah. that something that you do often when you're working on a show? Do you write with specific voices in mind? Does it evolve as you cast it? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, so so when I first started writing the show, I kind of had my first cast, and I was writing with all of those particular voices in mind. And then as like people, you know, joined the show, and I like, got to learn their voices, like the the show definitely changed as people got cast. And so like once Lucas joined us at the second second workshop of the show, I like was like, oh, that's what Anatole sounds like. And so then any new music I wrote for him, you know, had, had that in mind. Um, and like I think one of the best examples of that is when. Uh, Philippa Sue joined us um, in the original production at Ars Nova. I had written like a kind of very like dainty, pleasant aria for Natasha in <laughs> Act One. Um, and, you know, Pippa joined us right as we went into rehearsals. And it was like only over the course of like learning her voice, like through rehearsals and then through the first run of the show that I was like, oh, like now I'm starting to understand what, what Philippa Sue's instrument is. And so when we got finally got the chance to transfer off Broadway, I just completely rewrote that song. And so that song is now No One Else, which is her big aria in Act One. But it was very much tailor-made for Pippa's voice. Mm-hmm. And that's the advantage of having a composer who is also a performer and an artist that understands like what it is to kind of set material on somebody. That it's not just if you want to get if you do want to get the truest result of the material, it's going to come in a way that's unique to the person that you are working with, as opposed to everyone should just be able to do everything. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. not yeah. realistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you all have to get back to the theater. That's true. So, but thank you so much for coming in. Great to talk to you all. My pleasure. Thank pleasure. You thank you. I won't let you. I won't let you. It's all. Thanks again for listening to Billboard on Broadway. If you would like to see Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, it's playing at the Imperial Theater on Broadway right now. If you would like to see the performances that cast members and Dave Malloy did in our office recently and see our ongoing Broadway coverage here at Billboard, please go to billboard.com slash Broadway. And if you love this 
podcast, which clearly you do, please go to iTunes and rate me and give us lots of stars. And we'll see you here next week. Blah, 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 blah.